I want you to open to John chapter 10. One more time, our subject is bearing up and overcoming. I thought maybe we were through last week, but I have another message I want to share on that same subject. John chapter 10, verse 10, again, it says, The thief cometh for this reason, to steal and to kill and destroy. Now, without going through all of that again, Paul refers to the devil as the tempter, the one who tries to turn you in the wrong path in life, to try to turn you into wrong decisions and wrong actions. Because the Bible says you can give place to the devil. If he is enticing somebody and he is playing on their anger, their frustration, or their gloom and their doom or their sorrow, and he can get you, instead of acting the way God teaches us to act, but to teach you some other way and to give in and cave in or faint, then he begins to occupy and what we call bring bondage into your life. You become snared. And there's a part of your life that the devil's in charge of, that he controls. The Bible calls these things strongholds. And far too much evidence in the church of the devil having a stronghold in areas of people's lives. They just keep falling into the same sin. We'll call it what it is. They give in to the same feeling, the same thing over and over again. And they bad got used to it. And their prayers almost like, Lord, I did it again. I'm sorry. Well, we shouldn't keep doing it again and again and again. But the problem is the devil. That's what he does. His desire is to steal and to kill and to destroy to defeat you, to lead your life in such a way that you're not blessed. You don't live the abundant life, as Jesus said the alternative was. You just sort of exist. You go to church and you hope maybe somehow God will intervene anyway and maybe do something for you that doesn't seem like it's getting done and so forth. So all the devil's activity, all of his efforts... We could just call them his temptings, his temptations. We looked at 1 Corinthians 10, 13. There is no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. And again, the opposite of that temptation is God is faithful. And so we know that the devil comes and he does all of these things to try to defeat us. And the evidence, as I said earlier, the evidence of our willingness to be weak and cave in is everywhere. We see it in church fights. We've been taught so many times, so many hours of your life, you have listened to things like be of the same mind, be of the same spirit, have compassion, love, be thinking of other people even more than yourself. We hear it all the time. Don't gossip and don't backbite and don't whine. We hear it all the time. And yet for centuries, churches keep splitting. They keep having problems. People are still adversarial with each other. They still are combative and they still are, are militant and they still have these feelings and resentments and ill will in the church. And it seems like no matter how much you teach, no matter how much you labor in explaining that you shouldn't do that, that's the devil's work, they still do it. And every time you do it your way and you resist God's way, you are being overcome. You cannot be blessed in this life. I don't care what church you go to, how much they paid for the building. You cannot be blessed when you're doing that. A life given to just letting yourself be angry or frustrated or moody or mad or revengeful, all of that's of the devil, every bit of it. And you never overcome when you give in to that, when you throw your fit, when you run that mouth. It's always being overcome. Now, the last verse we used last week, or the next to last verse, was Titus 1 and verse 16. Now, this is what it said. Titus 1, he says, they profess that they know him. I talk about Christians. Paul was saying the same thing I'm trying to say. He said, there are many, many people in many churches who profess that they know God. They profess they have been born again. 
They profess that Jesus is their Lord. They profess they're going to heaven. They profess their name is written in the Lamb's book of life. Or as Paul wrote to Titus, they profess that they know God, yet by their works, how they live and the actions, reactions, choices they make, they deny. They deny the Lord. Here's what he's saying. You cannot say you know the Lord if you're always acting like the devil. You cannot say you know the Lord when the things you do are in denial of what the Lord said to do. The thing that's ruling in your life, that the thing the devil uses, is your flesh, your feelings. This is what he triggers your response from. And we're just so balled up in our feelings and we're just so balled up in our emotions. We're so given to expressing ourselves that no matter what God says, this thing is strong. It just controls a man's life and personality, ruins his testimony, makes people in town say, yeah, well, there's another one of those holy rollers that talk good, but look at the way they act. They don't pay their bills. They don't treat their wives right. They drive. They do this. They look, look, look at the way they act. They go to ball games. They're mouthy and hollering. And if they play sports, they're just mouthy and they're hollering. It's like they never heard anything. They're not overcomers. They're not even overcoming. This is what Paul finished at Titus 1 and said. They not only profess to know God, but he said in works they deny him. And he mentioned three things. One, he said being abominable. Abominable, yeah. Detestable. Detest comes from despise. I mean, something to be loathed. Look at these people. They call me by my name and they cuddle up to me on Sunday morning, sing all these songs, and they go out of here and they act like the devil. That's detestable. They said they're disobedient. They're unwilling to obey. It's a word which is based on a word from faith, but with an A in front of it means negative. Instead of being faithful, they're disobedient, unfaithful. They don't do what God said. They do what they feel. They I tell you one thing, and that's what rules their life. It rules them. The other thing is he said they're reprobate. Church reprobate means disapproved, unacceptable, unworthy, cast away. This is what the word of God that you're holding in your lap, this is what the word of God says this morning to us that we are required to overcome. In fact, if you would just turn briefly to Revelation 21 and verse 7 and 8, because according to this verse at the end of the Bible, from the words of Jesus, if we do not overcome, what awaits us at the time we have to meet God? When it's our time to go, if we have not overcome in this life, then what awaits us? Is it okay anyway? I'm asking you folks this morning because you're thinking people. Is it okay anyway? Is it okay if a wife does not submit to her husband? Is it okay? Is it okay if a husband doesn't love his wife like Christ loved the church? Is that all right? Is it okay if we just refuse to work it out and get divorced? I mean, is that all right? Then why do people do it? Is there not a solution? Then why doesn't the solution prevail? It's because of these strongholds. People just say, I just can't help how I feel. My feelings are bigger than God. My feelings rule me. I am overcome by my feelings by my thoughts, ideas. And in spite of what I've ever been taught, there's a resignation inside of me to see it my way. And yet somehow I'm sure that I'm all right, I'm born again, I'm going to heaven when I die and all of that. Where do you get that? Listen to this, Revelation 21 and verse 7. He says, He that overcometh shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. Now, just using one verse in the Bible, just one verse, we'll have you ask you a question, give you a test. To whom 
does God relate personally? Overcomers. I'm not taking that out of context. That's what it says. To him that overcometh. Now, that's a choice that you have to make based on what you've heard. You can't overcome something if you don't know what it is you overcome. So you teach people. Now, based on what you've been taught, your relationship to God is a whole lot depends on how you respond to what he said. That's pretty clear. And God says, he that overcometh shall inherit all things. Now, that's what I want. I want that. And I can have that. All I have to do is do it God's way. When my body wants to do things, when my body is so subject to all the stuff my body is subject to, when I allow my body to rule and my passions and my feelings rule, I'm not overcoming. How then can I inherit anything? See, there's something solemn about that, and you know it. There's something you have to pause right now. You've got to pause and think about that because your life is running by you pretty slow or pretty quick, and you're evaluating yourself, which is good. But thank God there's yet a tomorrow. At least there's a little bit of time. If it's not right, you can fix it. But he said, shall inherit all things. And he said, at the end of that verse, he said, and I will be his God. And he shall be my son. That's relationship. That's personal relationship. That's when God himself is willing to be your God. We want to live as we please and feel that God must surely see all the good things I do. And yet God says the one thing you can do that I've given you to do is to overcome. What? Everything the devil is tempting you to do, overcome it and don't do it. Just don't give in. Do it God's way. Crucify your flesh with its affections and its lust thereof. So what do we do now? There's three or four points I want to make this morning. Surely we can get through this. So what do we do? In light of what I've just said, what do we do then so that we can inherit all things? that we are on the favorable side of God, that he really is my God, that we're not one of those mentioned in the Bible where God is ashamed to be called their God because of the way they live. What can we do? Number one, turn to 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5 and verse 18. 1 John 5. 18. We know that whosoever is born of God attends church. This is a tough verse. This is that verse of scripture that you don't like to stay at or linger at too long, but it's in the Bible. It's in there as much as John 3:16 or Psalm 91 or Psalm 23 is in there. We know that whosoever is born of God sinneth not. But he that is born of God, birthed by God, what does he do? Help me now. K-E-E-P-E-T-H. Keepeth himself. And for a man who keepeth himself, what follows? And the wicked one, what? Toucheth him not. I want that. That's what I'm talking about. I don't want the wicked one touching me. I don't want him robbing me. I don't want him robbing my family. I don't want to go through a forlorn, sorrowful life bitter. I want to be free. I want to be free in spite of his presence in my life, in spite of all of his temptations. I want to be free. I know I have to face, I know I have to battle, I know I have to draw my sword, I know there's going to be dark, long nights and difficult days in my life. I'm going to have to prove myself reliable and faithful, just like God is. He wants us to be like him. 
He wants us to honor his word, and we give him our word. He wants us to honor that too. I want to keep myself free from the devil and all of his activity. I don't want strongholds in my life. I don't want to live the rest of my life making excuses why I can't live right. Because I can live right. It can be done. That every sad, sorrowful thing that tries to creep into your life or your family or your business, that there is a solution that God will give you to run that thing out. I want to be free. And the Bible says this, he that is begotten of God, first of all, sinneth not. Now, I guarantee you, most Christians say, well, that's not possible. Well, then that's a lie. God lied to us. Did you know that? He told you to sin not, and you said that's not possible. Therefore, he's a liar. You want to call him that? If he said, he that is born of God sinneth not, then that's the way it is. No person who's been born again, many are professing whatever they want to and all, wherever they want to say, but no truly born again person has a license to sin. You have no excuses. None are accepted. They're none. You can talk about, well, I was born like this and ra- I don't care. It doesn't matter. Every sad, sorrowful, dismal thing that's ever been in your life can be run off because you've got a solution for it now. So therefore, you are not a victim anymore. You no longer have any excuses. Sin. He said, he that is born of God sinneth not. Doesn't he say that? Just for a brief moment, put your finger right where you are and go all the way back to the other in the Bible, Genesis, chapter 4 and verse 7. Now, we've been there before. We'll go there a whole lot more through the years. One of those verses of Scripture that has got to be lodged in your heart, and you've got to understand this. If thou doest well, will you not be accepted? Now, this is the Lord speaking to anybody in this church. If you do well, not well on your terms, well on his terms. If you do well, will you not be accepted? Does it say that? then if you want to be accepted, what do you do? You do well. you got to find out what well is and what well means, and then you got to assign yourself the task of living like that. But here's the deal. If you do well, you will be accepted. You can't accept God, but he can accept you. You can receive. Now, the next part of that verse says, and this is the problem that we face as human beings in this world, but if thou doest not well, is one reason why we don't. It's because sin lieth at the door. Whose door? The door to your life. The one where you open to give place to the devil. Not only is Jesus knocking on your door, but the devil's knocking on it too. Jesus offers you a cross and says, Die. The devil says, hogwash, come on, let's have fun. You're only young once, get at, come on, man, girl. Boy, your body responds, your mind responds. The more you hook up with the world, the more that's what you really, really want. But he says in that seventh verse, he said, sin lieth at the door and his desire is what? Isn't that John 10, 10? Isn't that 1 Peter 5, 8 and 9, the devil goes about like a roaring lion? Doesn't he? Seeking. Seeking what? Whom he can devour. He's looking for somebody that's not paying attention. He doesn't care if you know. You say, well, I didn't know. I didn't know that. Doesn't matter. Devil loves stupidity. The most dumb, ignorant, unlearned person in the world can be snared by the devil just as quick as some scholar can. Doesn't have to be true. When the devil tempted Jesus, he didn't tell him the truth. The devil's a liar. He uses lies to mislead us and dissuade us. Because sin is the devil. That's what the devil is. Because he called him right in that verse, sin lies at the door and his desire is for you. But he ends by saying what? 
rule over it or rule over him. Can you? You mean to tell me this morning that God says, tucked away early in the Bible, at the end of a sentence, one of the most magnificent truths that Christians don't know, that you can rule sin. Sin should not have dominion over you. That's Romans 6, 14. Sin should not have dominion over you. Because James 4, 7 says, you should rule it. How can you do it? You be in Christ. When Jesus went to the cross, he died for, on the behalf of, all of his elect. Therefore, when he went to the cross, all the elect went with him. Are you with me? We weren't even born yet, but in the economy of God, when Jesus went to the cross, he carried with him everything it would take to relieve us, not only of the penalty of death, but also of the victory in life. So that when he died, I died. And as he says in the book of Romans, a beautiful story in the book of Romans, if you take the time to wade through it. When he died, I died. That's what baptism's all about in Romans 6. When you lower a man into the watery grave, it's symbolic of the fact that he dies. He's being buried. And when he's raised up out of that watery grave, his sins are washed away. Jesus took care of that a long time ago. Now, if Christ is in me, and if he really is the greater one in 1 John 4, if greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world, then he that is in me, if I will yield to him, I can rule him that is in the world. I don't have to give place to the devil. I don't have to lie. I don't have to cheat. I don't have to steal. I don't have to throw a fit. I don't have to sass. I don't have to do that. I don't have to have an opinion. I don't have to make ugly remarks and be resentful and have ill will against. I don't have to do that. I know very few people that don't, but I don't have to be like that. I don't have to, but that's a choice I have to make. You see, I've been taught that. I have taught that. And woe is me if I'm unwilling to live that. Yes, we stumble along the way. Some of these things are slow coming. Our bodies have ruled us for many, many years, but it doesn't have to shouldn't have the right to. We should rule over it. And when he said in 1 John 4, 7, that we should rule over it, he is saying, in light of the title of this message, to sin means that you are not overcoming. Every sin we commit, little ones and big ones, Every sin means that we have yielded to the temptation. We have not overcome. We have been overcome. Every time. Name a sin that you cannot overcome. Name one. Name anything the devil throws at you that God hasn't given you something to counter it with. Name one. Name any power the devil has that God hasn't given you a greater power. Name any kind of weird, ugly, nasty, unclean thoughts that you may have in your mind that God hasn't given you a remedy for. Name one. All those excuses and all that stuff that we've learned to say, well, we're an exception to what. No, we are not. We are not. Somebody has told us that we're an exception. Somebody has told us that, well, nobody understands you. You're different. Somebody told you that, but that's not true. Every activity of sin in our life means that we are not overcoming. We're yielding to the power of our flesh and our feelings and our senses and our sensualities and our carnalities. That's what it means. We don't like to admit that. Because we think, how could it be? I go to church all the time. I've been in church my whole life. How could that apply to me? Look at your life. It was Paul who wrote, examine yourself to see if you indeed are even in the faith. 
Look at yourself. Look at where you go. Isn't your body the temple of God? Doesn't the Bible tell us that we are to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice? If we don't control what our body wants to do, our body is ruling us and we're being overcome. Your body has eyes, doesn't it? Mine does. I got two of them right here. And yet they have no right to look at anything they want to, do they? Is there not another something in me that has the right to say what they look at? Uh-oh. I got ears, don't I? Do y'all have ears? Do you folks have ears? What do you listen to? How can a body be holy? How can the temple that God wants to dwell in a clean temple, how can it be holy unless we manage it? What do you watch? You got eyes? What do you listen to? What do you eat? Do you limit yourself? Or do you have this seafood diet? I see food and I eat it. What do you put on your body? You drag it around and look like some half-showered, unshaven, ugly-looking, trashy-looking thing. Bought me some $40 jeans with holes in them. You're not very smart. You could have bought some that had all the material in them for less than that. It's just so trashy look. It's just so unclean look. This hair looking like it. I don't know what you'd call it. Or you don't cover it up if you're a lady or a young lady. Or you try to make it to be a thing that is observable and, whoa, look at that. I mean, it's your body. Your Heavenly Father is just observing what you're doing with it. Maintaining it as a holy temple or you're allowing it to be used or held. Messed with by other people. Abusing your body, it's supposed to be holy. When I see you, I don't see your spirit. I don't see the inside of you. I see your body. I look at your body. I'm supposed to see something that God, by your will and your consent, is maintaining on his terms. That you don't listen to, that you don't follow around, that you don't do things that everybody else is doing. Because for you, he that knoweth... uh, uh, there's a verse in the Bible in Romans 14, I'm sure it's still there. He that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. What does that mean? Well, when you know you're supposed to do something right and you don't do it, the devil has jumped in here and you're minding him instead of God. You've opened the door to him instead of God. He's strengthening his stronghold in your life. Now he's going to teach you how to make excuses. Well, I'm just, you know, not there ain't no gist or just. You have to admit it. I have sinned. I am a sinner. I have yielded my body to the appetites of my senses. It's no longer a holy vessel. It's full of uncleanness. We don't want to admit that, do we? And yet the Bible talks like that. It says that. The word keepeth, back in 1 John 5, 18. This is what I read in a scholarly dictionary about what the word keepeth means. It means to watch, to observe attentively, to keep the eyes fixed upon. Figuratively, it means to obey, observe, keep. Fulfill a duty, a precept, and a law to perform watchfully or vigilantly. Let me tell you a couple of places in the Bible where the word keepeth is used. One is in John 14, 21. He that hath my commandments and is vigilant to observe, keeps, obeys. He that has my commandments and keeps them. Let me ask you all a question. Why wouldn't you keep them? Because of a stronger tug not to. Something else says you can't have fun if you keep the word. And then they say, well, God understands. I mean, this is that trashy, end-time, modern 
excuse. Well, God knows we're just flesh, and he knows we're, he knows, and he's not going to hold. I mean, God ain't going to send us to hell for that. I wouldn't take a lot of liberties with what God's going to do in as much as you don't know him. Or 1 John 2, verse 4 and 5, he that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments. What is he? He's a liar, and what does that mean? That it says that the truth is not any. But, but whoso keepeth the word of God in him verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby we know that we are in him. Just think of it for a moment. Jesus said, he that saith, I know him and keepeth not his commandments is a liar. If a man loves me, he'll keep my word. So John says again in this little epistle here, Whoso keepeth his word in him verily is the love of God brought to completion. That is, the word of God will do what it was designed to do and finish its course. It will make you what you're supposed to be. But the choice, the keepeth part, that's up to you. Look in 1 John 3 and verse 24. And he that keepeth his commandment, there's that relationship word, dwelleth in him. And God in him. And hereby we know that he abides in us by the spirit which he has given us. Let me ask you another simple question based on one single verse. Verse 24. Who has a relationship with God? Or with Christ? Is it not he that dwelleth in him? See, the phrase dwelleth in him is just a religious word to most churches. It's just, oh yeah, you're dwelling in the, you're abiding in the Lord. Abide in the Lord, dwelling in the Lord. People say that, assume that, and then go on without ever stopping to detail it. Like I said, dwelling, keeping the word means that you attentively attach yourself to the assignment that this is what you do. And if what you're about to do is going to dishonor this, you don't do it. You rule the situation by choices you make. You become faithful when you do that, faithful to God. You resist the devil. And what does he do? He flees because you're ruling him. And when he said in verse 24, he that keepeth his commandments dwells in him and God in him. It means the relationship that you want with God has all together to do with how you relate to his word and keep it. Because if you do, you had a relationship with the Lord. The devil's going to have to respect you. Turn to James chapter 1. Verse 27. Pure religion and undefiled is this, that a man visit the widows and the fatherless in their afflictions and something else, and to keep himself unspotted from the world. To keep himself unspotted. What does unspotted mean? Well, you know the verse in Ephesians 5. He's going to sanctify and cleanse us with the washing of water by the word till we be without spot. A church, clean, pure, without spot. Spots and unspotted is a word dealing with the moral aspect of human life. There are things that we do, even thinking. You have a brain in your body, don't you? Didn't Jesus said, if you look upon a woman to lust after her, you've sinned? If you see somebody that did you wrong once and you're angry, that's the condition that leads to murder. Have you not sinned? Well, how narrow is this life? How narrow is Christianity? That's what he said. And he says, and to keep himself unspotted from the world. Peter writes in 2 Peter 3, 14, he said, you make sure that you be found of him when he comes. You make sure you are found of him without spot. What does that mean? I mean, that's a serious word. When he comes, you make sure you're without spot. Does that mean if you have spots and blemishes, you're unacceptable? 
I mean, spots and blemishes go back probably to the sacrificial code in the Old Testament. Remember, before you sacrificed an animal, you had to examine this animal. You had to look for any blemish, any flaw. Where? In his body. They looked between their toes, in their ears. They looked everywhere to make sure there were no growths, no things that were less than perfect. And then when they cut the lamb open and caught its blood, they examined the entrails to make sure there wasn't something in there that was not right. Listen, if it wasn't right, God would not accept it. They took it to the priest. The priest would examine it. Then while that little lamb holding that little thing there, they would kill it, catch the blood while it convulsed until it finally died. And then they examined it. Parts of it were one sacrifice and parts for another. But it was examined. If there was any flaw anywhere in this process, that lamb was not acceptable. You can't approach God with that thing. Malachi. Remember the book of Malachi? He said, you're dishonoring me. And they said, we haven't dishonored you. He said, when you offer the sick and the lame and the blind, do you not hate me? But see, their thinking was they had modified all what the Bible said down into human conditions. They said, well, look, God only means that something must die in your place. It, it doesn't have to be perfect. Come on. So they would go out the flock, get something that was about dead anyway, and kill the thing. It was almost dead. And God says, I don't want that. Well, what does he say to the church? If these are types, if these are things that are in the Old Testament that were written for our learning, are we supposed to look at what God accepts and think in terms of perfection and cleanness? Well, see, that bothers us because we've been given outs. I was church for a whole life. Nobody ever talked like this when I was growing up. Now, here we are in the end time. The Lord is about to come. I don't think a church is ready. I don't. I don't think everybody's going to be ready anyway. But I want us to be ready. Take the world. We talked about the world, mentioned it a while ago, and my body, how it attaches to it. My body is the only part of me that contacts the world. My mind or my soul on the inside of me makes a lot of decisions that controls my body. In and of itself, if I was brain dead, what could my body do? Nothing. So though my body is the instrument that engages itself in sin, it is prompted by something on the inside. Corruptness on the inside. And when that corruptness on the inside doesn't yield to the washing and the cleansing of God, then I become a corrupted person, even though with my mouth I confess to Jesus as Lord, and I say I'm born again, I'm a new creature in Christ. Acting like that? I don't think you're born again. I think you're religious. I don't think you're born again. I asked a man one time if his wife was born again. Because there were just peculiar traits, just little things there that Christians don't do that. They don't act like that. And he said, oh, I think so. How many of you believe that if God has transformed your life, it's going to be very evident? But if you join church, you're no different maybe than you ever were. But if God has come on the inside and changed you on the inside, you are prompted by the work of the Spirit. You are prompted to watch, to guard your mouth, to shut your eyes from the ways of a maid. You're prompted to listen carefully, take heed what you hear and take heed how you hear it. Because the Holy Spirit ain't going to leave you alone. When he comes in, he comes in to mastermind a change in your life and to never let you forget. And when you want to mess up, you'll be chastised because that's the way God loves you. You can't say, well, I can't help, you know, lying. I'm just born like No, nobody was born a liar. The tendency to lies in all of us, you had to yield to that and learn to do it and become good at it. But God said that he wants us to overcome the world if we're friends of the world. We're not friends of God. It's the world out there, folks. It's the world. It's the offering of pleasure. The idea of a feeling. Mm. All that kind of stuff. 
It's just like a word used a while ago in Revelation 21 and verse 8 when he says, but the fearful and the unbelieving and the abominable, and then he mentions sorcerers. And the word sorcerer is a word for drugs, pharmacus. We get pharmakia, pharmacy from that word. One who makes and who uses drugs. It could involve witchcraft and all of that too. You know, that's not an overwhelming problem in the church. I think drugs could be. Because Revelation 21 says that in the last days, power plants are going to shut down. This is going to stop. That's going to stop. And the whole world is going to come to a halt because of sorcery or drugs. There are people today that sell their soul to the devil for drugs. People are buying sex drugs so they can enhance something that doesn't need enhancing. Just this desire. Put anything in my body. Sniff glue. Sniff gas. Anything to get high. Kids take their parents' prescription medicines to school and trade it. Here's a pain pill. Here's one for uh, uh, later in life that mama's taken. And to get over the hot flashes and stuff, and they got some of them, and they got maybe a birth control pill. Can you imagine what that does to your body? But they don't care just as long as they feel something different. There's a whole generation, you listen to me, there's a whole generation out there that, as I speak, is ruining itself. It is slowly eroding its ability to function normally. And you see behind the violence, the killing, the murders, the meanness and the honoriness. So many of them are on drugs when they do it or they're selling this stuff, they'll kill, they'll do anything. A woman will give her body away to all kinds of abuse if she can get drugs. If you can't master that, how in the world can you go to heaven? Isn't Jesus bigger than that? Is he bigger than your appetites? Is he bigger than something you drink? Isn't he bigger than all of this stuff? Then why don't we overcome it? It is a war, folks. I'm not saying any of this is easy. It is a war, and we have to overcome. We have to fight the good fight of faith. You have to do that. Turn to Galatians 6, the remedy for the world. Let me show you what the remedy for the world is. you got to keep yourself. you got to monitor yourself. Watch over yourself. Don't go there. Don't wear that. Don't eat that. Don't watch that. Don't listen to that. The enticements, the allurements, the subtle ways of the devil, overcome it. Overcome it. Galatians 6.4 tells that the way you do this is the cross. The cross. The cross. His cross. Are you all there? Galatians 6 and verse 14. But God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by whom the world is crucified to me and I to the world. That's what happened in Romans 6. He went to the cross and died. Everything that plagued and defeated mankind was defeated at the cross. He spoiled principalities. He nailed sin to his cross. And he turns around and he says to us now, you can be free. Everything that controls you, the devil no longer has the right to control you like that. You resist him and that dark spirit will flee from you. He will. He will flee from you. It was Peter who wrote that. He goes about like a roaring lion. Peter watched, he didn't see this, but he was in John 13 when the Bible says when Judas entertained his final temptation to betray Jesus, the Bible says Satan entered into Judas. Satan entered into Judas. He was in there. What happened to Judas? He committed suicide. Because that's what the devil does. He comes to kill, to steal. But who would blame the devil for that? The psychologists would say, well, I think, uh, you know, Jude just realized he shouldn't have done that. And man, his feelings overwhelmed him and his psyche went out of circuit. And he just, I just couldn't stand a moment. Oh, and just in a moment of weakness, he hung himself. 
You can call it any that you want to, but what happened was the devil killed him. Why would he not try to do the same thing with us? Why is temptation any less today than it was then? You got to have a cross. He said, I glory in the cross of Christ. Our cross eliminates the devil's power. Remember Jesus said in Matthew 16, Then said Jesus unto his disciples, If any man will follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Now let me ask you a question. Is it possible to follow Jesus without this cross? And what is the cross for? Well, it was a horrible thing. Jesus despised the cross. And the shame and the agony of it, of having his garment stripped away and hanging there until he died and people walking by and looking. And some, I'm sure, had to turn their head. It was just a horrible thing. It was a curse. And yet it represents to us the place where he nailed all my sins, all my weakness, all the stuff that overwhelms mankind. He nailed it to the cross. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, was nailed to the cross. I bear it no more, unless the devil can convince me that I should. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I. Christ lives in me. Does he? Chapter 5, look in verse 24. And they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with what? That's what you do. You know why a gloomy, dismal, hurt-feeling person, you know why they become cheerful? Because they recognize that acting like this isn't what Christians do. That moody woman a man can't figure out or that difficult husband that doesn't seem to care. You know why they act like that? Either they don't know that Jesus has given them a way for deliverance or they don't want it or they can't understand it. Everything can be changed. You can be a cheerful person. All of you can. You can be a person who gives up making excuses why you can't attend, why you can't give, why you can't go, why you're not able. You can make all the excuses you want to, but they're all unacceptable. Especially if it leads to sin. Next, go to 1 John 2 and verse 14. See if this will work. I have written unto you, fathers, because you have known him that is from the beginning. I have written unto you, young men, because you are strong... And the word of God is in your lap this morning. And the word of God abideth in you and because it abides and you have overcome the wicked one. Isn't that the way it should be? All right, now stop with me. In 1 John 5, 18, when a man keepeth himself, what can the devil do? He says he toucheth him not. Whoever chooses to keep themselves means the devil can no longer touch you, gain advantage and entrance, defeat you, throw you down, throw you backwards. And he says right here, if the word of God is abiding in you, secondly, he says, then you are strong. And if you are strong, doesn't it say you have overcome the wicked one? Okay, then who overcomes the wicked one? Those who are strong. Okay, who's strong? Who does the Bible say is strong? Those in whom the word is abiding. I'm not talking about memory. I'm not talking about a scholarly life of reading and studying the word. I'm talking about when the word is abiding as a living force. There are lots of people who have learned and learned and learned, but do not trust the Lord. They can tell you what it says, but they don't do it. I'm talking about those in whom when the word comes, it attaches itself to your heart. It becomes a living way of life. 
This is what you do. I may not be able to explain all of this, but I know this is what I do. I'm supposed to turn the cheek. I'm supposed to go the second mile. I'm supposed to overcome. I'm not supposed to gossip. I'm not supposed to act like that or watch that or see that. I'm not supposed to do that stuff. Therefore, I won't do it. Mr. Wiest, 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 ever how you want to pronounce it, is a, is a scholarly man with a Greek dictionary and translation of the Bible. He says this about the word strong and the word abide. He said the word strong refers to an endowment. Well, that would mean, if that's right, then we are strong when we are endowed with power, a power that comes from God. And he said, strength to overcome Satan is part of the salvation given the believer. It takes the form of spiritual energy supplied to the yielded saint by the Holy Spirit. It's what you give. It's a free gift. You can overcome. Every one of you can overcome. You can do this. You can rise above the gloom, the doom, the sadness, and the sorrow. Or the <laughs> you can rise above it because the author of what you're crying about is the devil. And the strength that God gives you enables you to overcome him. And the word abide means to dwell as in a house. It's a place. It's a place you're living. It's living. The word is abiding inside of you. Mr. Woos goes on to say the word of God residing in the hearts of a believer in an unhindered, welcomed state. I receive it. I receive your word, Lord. How do you know I receive it? Well, when given the chance, this is what I'll do. And what if you die? I will die doing it. And I'll meet the Lord. He might tell me something I didn't know, but he will know that I died doing it. There are worse ways to die. I'm not teaching you all to die. I'm just saying there are worse ways to die. The word abiding inside of you is the power of God abiding inside of you. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. The gospel is the power of God. This is the one thing that God gives to you. The only thing he calls a sword. It's a word. It's called the sword of the Spirit. Spirit doesn't fight your battles for you. Holy Ghost doesn't make you overcome. He simply comforts you and quickens you. And he's called alongside as a paraclete. He's called alongside to help you and assist you and, and quicken you and bring to your remembrance the things of Jesus because when the word's in you, it'll come out of your mouth. You speak it. Because in closing, go to Revelation 12. and verse 8, Revelation 12, I think, is a pivotal chapter in the book of Revelations. I would to God I had a clean, clean, unhindered understanding of the whole chapter. Instead of just bits and pieces. But here's what it says, which is pretty clear. Concerning the devil and his attack against God's people, it says, And they overcame him, the devil, by the word of their testimony. They testified with their mouths what they had realized in their heart as a living revelation. It's as though it was so real as though they could see it and they testified to it. It, didn't Jesus say this? It is written. That's my sword. It is written. And they overcame him by the word of their testimony and by what? The blood of the lamb. I can't think of anything today, one word that the devil despises and cringes at more than blood. The blood of Jesus. The life of the flesh is in the blood. And when he began shedding his blood from the garden to the cross, all those many times that the blood coming out of his sweat as he wrestled with his situation, from getting his back beat to having the hair jerked out of his face, a spear in his side, nails in his hands, all that bleeding, all that life flowing out. But that's where my victory is. That's where the victory is in the blood of Jesus. They overcame him by the word of their testimony and by the blood of the Lamb.
You really do need to know for yourself, personally and privately, how important your confessions about what Jesus has done is and what the blood of Christ means in the Bible concerning your redemption and your atonement. For without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. Now, in closing, you're really close to this verse, so go back to 1 John 5 and verse 4. For whatsoever is born of God sinneth not. We said that a while ago, but notice here. Whatsoever is born of God. Now, a lot of people say they are. Obviously, obviously, they all aren't. They act like it, but they're not because this doesn't work. Whatsoever is born of God overcomes the world. Does your Bible say that? All right, let me give you something to have a conviction about. What if I'm not overcoming the world? What if with my eyes I'm still wanting to look at things I shouldn't look at? Drink things I shouldn't drink. Eat too much or whatever. Listen to the wrong kind of opinions and crowds and radio programs and conversations. What if I know I shouldn't, but I do it anyway? Am I being overcome? I'm not overcoming. What do we do? What do we do? Well, he said the victory that overcomes the world at the end of verse 4 is even our faith. Your Bible says that. That little word pops up throughout the New Testament over and over again as one of the most important words in Christianity. Faith. Because faith means you are going to live like, act like, or accept as true something you've never seen come to pass. You have no evidence of it working, but you're supposed to live like it has. There's not many who do this. I hope you all will. Jesus said, what things ever you desire when you pray, believe. Believe you have it and you'll get it. He didn't say you'd look better. He didn't say you'd start seeing it. He just said, when you pray, believe. That's all. To start living like what Jesus said is true. You're still coughing. Still limping. Still hurting, bending over. Still achy and leaky. And yet, you get out of bed anyway. You refuse to cater to your body's feelings. You master your body as much as you can. You tell it to get up. You're going to church. I don't feel so good. Shut up. You're going to church. I'm hauling you to church. Body, you ain't ruling me. We're not living on your terms. The light that I have here is what we're going to walk by. Now you get up and get in the shower or I'll turn it on cold. Now you get dressed. Now don't you say nothing but praise the Lord. Best you can say it. Praise the Lord. All right, good. Now go to church. When they all say, what's wrong with you? Say, I'm healed. I'm healed. If I pass out, may I holler, I'm healed on the way to the floor. It's not a sin to be tested. It's a sin to give up. Faith signals victory. What does the very next verse say in your Bible? Who is he that overcometh the world? He that believeth. Believeth whateth? How about all you folks out in disc world, the disc land? Who believes? Well, what do you believe? Let me tell you what you can believe. I'd like to say you just believe the word. The only thing you can really believe is what's abiding in you. You can confess the rest of it, but you'll only believe with your heart what is abiding in your heart. You can have a head full of knowledge and walk away from this, but when your heart has embraced this and you have a passion for it, you're going to lock in. You're one of those that's going to make it and come out on the other side good.
Because this is what true believers will do. And this is what we teach. Now, are you overcomers? Are you in Shelbyville Christian Assembly? Are you bearing up and overcoming? You can, can't you? Say to yourself, I can. All right, Father, in the name of Jesus, let those words become a living reality in our life from this day and this moment on. For this evening, tomorrow, whatever day comes, may there be in us that living awareness that we are called to honor Jesus by trusting his word and resisting the devil with it. I ask you to bless these folks here this morning. I ask you to give them a keen understanding of what has been said. That nobody would believe anything that I've said because I've said it. But they would search the scriptures and find out for themselves the truth of these things. Dear God, may we be a body of overcoming people. This I ask this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.